Hello again, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, with Volume 27 of Classic Wrestling Memories, where we are going to talk about the 2019 inductees into the WWE Hall of Fame. And what's this, you may ask? This is Classic Wrestling Memories. You're talking about something that happened in 2019. What is? Well, Classic Wrestling Memories exists for fans of the previous generations of wrestling. But in a way, so do Halls of Fames. And we consider any time for Classic Wrestling Memories before the end of the Monday Night War to be fair game. And everybody, with the possible exception of one, the prime of their careers was before that infamous buyout of WCW by WWE. So we're going to talk about a lot of careers, and a lot of them predate the fall of WCW. And once again, my usual co-host from a nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, one of my favorite shows that we do every year. Uh, I love the Hall of Fame. Uh, I love to see people that I grew up in, uh, in spot that inspired me to want to become a wrestler getting accolades, often some of them underappreciated. So it's nice to see them um, get the respect they, they deserve. Um, I will I will steal the sentiments of James E. Cornette when some of the fans of today ask, well, if you're not a fan of the WWE, why do you think, why do you care about their Hall of Fame? And I would say that if you truly respect these individuals and you truly respect what they did for the wrestling business and for you as a fan, uh, you would want to see them honored on the biggest stage with the, with the most people are going to see it. And whether you think the WWE Hall of Fame is legit or, or you're, you're happy or unhappy with their selection process, you cannot deny they are the most well-known and visible of all the entities that call themselves a, a professional wrestling Hall of Fame. So I'll leave it at that. Agreed. And our format for this will be pretty straightforward. We're basically just going to go down the list of everybody that was inducted and say a little piece about them. And hopefully we'll say a few things that maybe you didn't hear in their respective inaugurations. And the first, obviously, was somebody we thought we would go in for a while, but he infamously turned down Hall of Fame inductions, uh, effectively told that the time was right. And of course, we're talking about the Honky Tonk Man. Now, uh, full disclosure here, Train, I don't know if I ever told you this, but mm-hmm. uh, in real life, uh, I was a big fan of the WWF at the time, Superstars arcade game. And Honky was actually one of my favorite characters to play when I wanted to win because his <laughs> offense in the game was actually a little bit unbalanced because that... Uh, noggin knocker or whatever you call it where he'd do the side headlock and then punch the guy in the face a few times right right you know that 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 was a great move in the context of the video game to (laughs) get a lot of damage now my favorite team was savage and warrior in that but if i wanted to beat the game i used uh, honky and boss man but uh (laughs) if i understood the history of honky tonk man and wwe he had repeatedly turned down the inductions because he didn't want to sign any other contract because quite frankly he was already at that time still in demand on the independence and you know signing an exclusive thing with WWE which is what legends deals effectively are uh he didn't want to do that because it would mean a cut in his booking so do I have that right that was my understanding yes mm-hmm. that uh, you know uh and I'm not quite sure how they do it now 
I know he's not the only individual to have been who have balked on an on an invite to be inducted into the Hall of Fame for that very reason. They didn't want to sign the Legends deal. They felt it, uh, you know, effectively at the time. I think the Legends deals worked somehow where you had X number of bookings you had to make for the company. They would give you plenty of, of advance, and they of course they'd pay for your travel expenses to get there. But they, you still had to make those, and they got uh, they were able to essentially what the real benefit for the company was they got to market and license your likeness in those you know for merchandise mm-hmm. and get, get a large cut. Um, right, action so figures and such. Right, action picture T shirts, posters, DVDs, things of that nature. Right, and so for a guy like like Honky Tonk Man, who was at the time still currently taking independent bookings and making decent money at it. He felt that that was a little too controlled. Now, I don't know if though, I don't know what the, what, what has changed. Did they not make him sign one or have they changed how restrictive or constrictive, I guess would be a better word. The legends deals are now, I don't know, but obviously that was a hurdle that had to have been uh, overcome for this to have happened to begin with. Um, but, uh, Wayne Wayne Ferris, for those you don't know, is is Honky Tonk Man's real name. Wayne's a pretty smart guy, pretty savvy businessman. So I'm I'm pretty sure that he got what he felt he was deserved out of this. You know, yeah. And one of the things I think you had told me this before train up. I, I may have heard it elsewhere as well, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure you could back it up that his look, even later in his career, up until really, you know, quite frankly, the the induction, all he had to do was dye his hair. Put on the jumpsuit, and he still looked like the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. Yeah, the only the only difference I can think of is he did grow his hair longer in the back, and he used to pull it in a ponytail. Yeah, but he still kept the sideburns and the pompadour in the front. You know, mm-hmm. so and yeah, he would keep it dyed because he has salt and pepper hair naturally. But you know, but Honky was never a guy that was known for having a great build or anything. Anyways, that wasn't what got him over. Right. What got him over was his charisma and how well he worked the character. You know, right and. Of course, you're not going to think of fantastic match of the year candidates for for Honky, but that also just was never his style. You know, we've talked no. about before with people like Hogan, where Hogan was actually very athletic. And if you have access to the New Japan Network, you'll find Hulk Hogan working very different, very uh, harder physicality matches. But he knew that all he had to do was Hulk up, drop drop the leg, finger point, and cup to the audience. It's a similar thing with Honky. You know, the whole idea with him being the greatest intercontinental champion of all time was, at the time, it was a joke. It was to get heel heat. He Mm -hmm. beat Ricky Steamboat, who beat Randy Savage, and here's Honky three weeks after winning the title, proclaiming himself to be the greatest intercontinental champion of all time, and whenever he had to fight a fair fight, he usually walked out and took the count-out victory. I mean, that was Honky's (laughs) shit for, like, two years. Right, and like as you point out, he's following back to back two of the most gifted in ring performers of that era. That even the even though Randy was a heel, the most ardent wrestling purists could see the guy could go in the ring, you know. And Steamboat, on top of being just a pure white meat babyface, backed that up with the ability to be arguably the greatest in ring performer of that era. So here you got a guy who doesn't do a whole lot of wrestling, just runs his mouth, and he's proclaiming himself the great. After two guys like that, yeah, it's just automatic. It's automatically going to generate heel heat automatically. Right. And, and to the, what's so funny is he briefly gave the story in his in his acceptance speech of how the honky tonk man came to be 
and how the honky tonk man got signed by Vince. We, we, we like to joke some that Vince sometimes is out of touch with certain things because he's so into the wrestling world that sometimes pop culture and sports and things of current events kind of pass him by. Mm-hmm. He saw Honky Tonk Man when he hired him as a babyface. Yeah. He thought, well, everybody loves Elvis, so they'll love an Elvis impersonator. And it was Honky himself. And he's like, no, Vince, no. Right. That's why I'm a heels because nobody wants to see somebody in, you know, impersonate the greatest rock and roll performer of all time. You know, he's right. Elvis is so beloved. No one wants to see a, a, even a, even a close proximity of, of an impersonation of him. And I, Vince didn't get it until, you know, a few weeks in the company. And then he realized, Oh yeah, you need to heal. <laughs> you know? right. yeah. those, and, so. and honky did say during his speech that he had come up with the gimmick before WWE. So that's why he yeah. was able to challenge I don't think it ever went to court, but I mean, he challenged WWE trying to take ownership of that gimmick and prevent him from using it outside of WWE because he had the legal precedent of being that character. And he even told it when he first developed it, he went to the promoter and said, this is what I'm going to do, you know, be an, El- be an Elvis impersonator. And the promoter mm-hmm. said, well, can you play the guitar? Honky's like, no. And the promoter's like, all the better. You know, because the, yeah, the promoter got it, you know, <laughs> it, it was it was Stu. It was Stu in Calgary. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And, do you know, one of the first territories he ran the gimmick in before he signed with WWE. Memphis. You're going to love this. Yep. OK, <laughs> folks, you're dressed like Elvis and not even the Elvis people. A lot of people who are Elvis purists want to remember the overweight ve- ve- Vegas end of his life era, era Elvis. You're dressed like that, butchering his songs. And calling yourself the king and the greatest of all time in a town that already has the king of wrestling and Jerry Lawler and the king of that's I, you're asking for a riot to happen, aren't you? I mean, that's the perfect right. territory to pull it off in, you know, and um, I, I, I was very fascinated and I wondered how he was going to handle it um, that in his in his acceptance that he he kind of just started with the honky tonk man, because I think Wayne understood that he was being inducted as the honky tonk man. Right. And Wayne is very pragmatic. He understands that that the vast majority of wrestling fans, with the exception of a small, very cliquish, older crowd who grew up in a certain territories, they're not going to remember Wayne Ferris and the Blonde Bombers, you know, uh, and with him and Larry Latham. And, and they're not going to remember that. They're only going to know him as Honky Tonk Man. So he kind of forgot about that. And I dare say the 10 or, 10 or, 10 or so year run he had before as Wayne Ferris was Hall of Fame worthy, in my opinion, at least from a territorial standpoint. He was a top heel, especially in tag teams, in most of the Southern territories. Um, the story's famous now because Jim Cornette won't let it go. Um, he t- describes it much better than him, so I would send you to his podcast or to Google you know, Jim Cornette, uh, Tupelo, Mississippi uh, concession stand brawl, it's the story that Cornette loves to talk about the night that hardcore was born in North America, where uh, Rob Fuller was the booker from Memphis that had pulled out and taken all the all the East Tennessee boys with him, and only guys that were really left were Dundee, Lawler, and the Bombers, Larry Latham and Wayne Ferris. And so Jerry Jarrett hot hot shot of the territory and told him at the end of the uh, end, end of the match at the night at the end of the night to have a brawl and they fought into the concession stand. This was in 78 and they're throwing hot dogs and using broom handles. And I mean, it was just a, you've seen the clip, haven't you, Seth? Oh yeah. 
So am I wrong in saying it is a legitimately 20 years before it's time an ECW into the stands type of brawl? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of that stuff in Memphis, you had pile drivers through tables, blood on the floor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Know. Or as Lance Russell famously said on the commentary, good God, there's mustard everywhere, right? <laughs> 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 I mean, it's just a great call because it was. And, you know, they didn't smarten up the concession stand people, which is part of the fun when you know that, to see oh, yeah. the lady running the concession stand having a co- coronary because she's thinking, they're destroying my stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> she's just seeing money, but dollar signs go down the drain. But that's the Wayne Ferris long before the WWE, especially in ring style, is a far cry from what we saw in the Honky Tonk Man days that he's known for and that he went in the Hall of Fame for. And so mm-hmm. you can essentially say the guy had basically two careers, didn't he? When you look at Southeastern Championship Wrestling, as the aforementioned Ron Fuller territory, NWA, Alabama heavyweight champion, Southeastern heavyweight champion, Southeastern tag champion, and Southeastern right. United States junior heavyweight champion. He's won titles in Stampede, uh, mm-hmm. won titles in World Wrestling Council in uh, Puerto, Rico. Puerto Rico. So these are all titles that he had before he went to New York. Mm-hmm. And and I and I would have to I, you brought that up and he he even talked about how he pretty much created the honky tonk man gimmick in his induction uh, speech uh, in Calgary he was a big star in Calgary for a couple of runs so it wasn't just a southern based guy he went and worked for Fritz a couple of times and had successful runs up there too um, so you know it, it, it's I think he was smart and kind of not talking about that much of his i mean i'm an old southern guy who grew up on southern fried wrestling so i know that 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 wayne ferris um that's what i watched growing up but i'm i'm in a small minority i understand that you know uh what most fans know is a honky-tonk man that's what he was going into the hall of fame for and rightfully so he had a hell of a run as the honky-tonk man in the wwe absolutely now there was something i had texted off Mike here, because I'm not mm-hmm. entirely 100% sure uh, if it is true. It's just based on my own observation. There were times mm-hmm. during right around that WrestleMania 3, WrestleMania 4 era, you know, mid, mid-80s, mm-hmm. mid to late 80s with Peggy Sue. I think at least a handful of times, Peggy Sue may have been Sherry under a wig just because Possible. the build was similar. She had a similar jaw, jaw structure. Obviously, she had the big overgrown shades in the wig, so you couldn't see all of her face. But it looked to me like at least some of those times that was Sherry that was with him. It's possible. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think back to that era. I don't know. I know Sherry was working for Vern a lot at that time, but I, I don't know. It's possible. Yeah. It's, it's, it would not surprise me. I'll say right, that. Right. Especially at that time when Sherry first came to WWE, she wrestled as a babyface. Yep, she sure did. It wasn't until she won the women's title that she turned heel. Right. And, and I think it's just a matter of just my assumption, essentially, that Vince probably just told Sherry to become a manager because she was a really good talker. And this is going to sound sexist to some people. This is going to sound meaner than it's intended. But at that moment in time, in those late 1980s, there really weren't that many women wrestlers especially in wwe that could cut a promo let alone a heel promo right especially the ones that were fulfilling the valet personas i mean i think uh sunshine and 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 world class you know the original valet for jimmy garvin was pretty Mm -hmm. good promo 
And after that, it was a significant drop off. Liz didn't talk at all. Precious did not talk at all. Baby doll was not a great promo. She was okay. Uh, Dark Journey was not a good promo. Um, Missy Hyatt was a good promo for her character, but it was supposed to be a ditzy blonde. So mm-hmm. you get my point, you know? Yeah, yeah. It just wasn't a, a skill set that was really required of valets at that point in time. Your job was to be essentially ar- eye candy, you know, arm candy. That was it. Mm-hmm. Right. And unless there was a dynamic like, say, you know, Randy ran with Liz where he was overprotective. Other than that, you know, they might get involved in an angle like Baby Doll did when, when Tully slapped her and Dusty came to her rescue that kind of thing but other than that no you know right so um but i I, you know it's kind of once again we've talked about this when we talked about you know rick rude being put with with um bobby the brain it's amazing that they put jimmy hart with wayne because he didn't need somebody to talk for him and that's not taking anything away from sherry or from from jimmy hart they're both incredible talkers but honky talk man was a great talker all by himself but i still think and rightfully so because honky tonk even said this himself in his, in his acceptance speech, Jimmy was, was really part of what made the package work, you know? Right. Right. And I think also it may have been a matter of, well, these are two guys who were synonymous with Mem- Memphis at points yep. in their career, but, you know, before working for Vince, you know, mm-hmm. Jimmy was, you know, one of the biggest stars in Memphis as a heel. Right. And I mean, a lot of people know this. A lot of our listeners might not. Wayne Ferris and Jerry Lawler are related. They're cousins. I can't remember exactly what the relation is. They do not like each other, which is, you know, it's okay. I have cousins I don't like, too. <laughs> you know, but uh, it, they, they still found a way to work together in Memphis. You know, obviously, Wayne was never the star in Memphis that Jerry was. But whoever has been a star in Memphis like Jerry Lawler was, no one. So, you know, it's, that's not saying a whole lot. But, I mean... To not to be to downplay what Lawler has done, but it, as far as in ring goes, Jerry's career in ring was not nearly close to being what Law what Honky Tonks was in ring for Vince. You know, so um, it's it's you know he brought it up. Um, da- Diamond Dallas Page likes to bring it up all the time too. I mean, go back and look at that that WrestleMania. I think it was was it six six where yeah. he yeah where he rode the pink Cadillac. That was Diamond Dallas Page's first time on national wrestling. He was trying to get into the business, and he was a you know he owned a, he owned a bar in Florida, and somebody knew him because he you know he made friends with wrestlers, and drove his pink Cadillac with a couple of the girls from his strip club to you know to the building to just to drive honky tonk to the ring just so he could be on TV. That was you know it wouldn't be years later until he actually started training at the power plant, but that's how far back Dust Diamond Dallas goes trying to get into business, and Diamond Dallas will openly admit that. Part of his getting in the business was because of Honky Tonk Man, you know. So uh, that's kind of cool too, right? Yeah. I thought it was I thought it was nice the Honky Tonk Man was it Honky Tonk Man or Jimmy Hart that, that mentioned that in the speech? I thought that one of them did. And I thought it, that was, it was cool. Jimmy, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I I've told you off, Mike, my 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 Honky Tonk Man story. I, I'll go ahead and tell the listeners now. I've actually gotten to wrestle Honky Tonk Man, and um, as we were speaking before, Honky Tonk Man was taking bookings. I mean, I think he might still be taking them, but this was in the late nineties, maybe early 2000, somewhere in there. And I worked for a promoter in West Virginia who brought, brought Wayne in all the time. He was, this is West Virginia, small towns. Some of the people are still believers. It's pre-internet. So not kayfabe. Is it completely dead? It's on life support, but it's not completely dead yet. You know? Um, and they just were believers and 
he, you know, Wayne had worked just about every top baby face that they had, and he just hadn't worked me yet. So it was essentially my turn, if that makes any sense. And I knew going into the show about two weeks beforehand, the promoter had called me and told me I was going to be working Honky Tonk Man, which I was excited. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I, this guy I grew up seeing on TV, right? So um, I had I had I had never met him more than just shook his hand. And uh, so I walk in the locker room and he was already there. And I, you know, stuck my hand out, introduced myself. And I said, I, my understanding is we're going to be wrestling each other tonight. And he didn't, he just, he, he held onto my hand and he kind of did that thing where he like looked me up and down from like my feet up to my head, back down to my feet. Size you up. Yeah. First thing he says, you a big and you ain't going to stretch me. Are you a kid? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, sir, I'm not. He goes, <laughs> well, good. And then he proceeds to list off all the things he won't do. Not what he will do, not what he won't do. I don't take backdrops. I don't take super suplexes. I don't take body slams. He starts listening off all the things. And I'm sitting there going, okay, okay, okay. And um, I'm not going to argue. He's the veteran, right? Right. And I said, I kind of looked at him and I said, sir, you've been doing this a lot longer than me. Because like I said, I knew who he was before he was Honky Tonk Man. And I kind of intimated that to him at this point in the conversation. I said, I, I told him, I said, you know, you, you're the vet. You've been in a lot. Why don't you call this and I'll do whatever you call. And he said, kid, we're going to go out there and we're going to have it. We're going to take it really easy. Just follow what I say. He goes, and I guarantee you'll be more over than you've ever been in your life. And then he asked me what I did. And so I explained some of my comedy spots. And then when we got to, we were the main event. We went out there and we did our match and he, he sold my comedy. And I even tussled his hair and like bit him on the rear end and stuff like that. And then when he took the heat over, it was old school and simple. He just did the spot where he would untape his wrist and then use the tape on his wrist to choke me and hide it from the ref and then work the crowd. And we probably did that for eight or 10 minutes straight. And I mean, but he was right. The crowd was totally eating it up. He just knew how to work the crowd and, and get it over. And, and I, I, I hope that my selling was, was, was helping, but he was working harder than me, I think, at getting the crowd riled up. Uh, I would like to say it was sympathy for me, but I think it was more on Wayne. And then finally, after about 10 minutes, he had me in the, you know, he had me with that around my throat and he kind of whispers in my ear, we got him kid. Let's take it home. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so we took it home and the crowd went nuts and he was exactly right. And that was my, I had a time of my life and I learned a lot about ring psychology in that match, you know, um, about positioning body and how to work the crowd and when to do what and the little things that he did. I had time in my life and I had nothing but respect for Honky Tonk Man. I didn't feel nothing. It was like a night off, you know, and I wish every match could be that easy, but unfortunately right. they aren't, uh, you know, where you do, you're not sore the next day and you still got over like gangbusters. I, I remember that for that same promoter uh, several months later, uh, there were, he had a less than, um, agreeable guy that he got asked to work that night and when he gave him the whole list of i don't do this i don't do this i don't do this thing he said if you do anything stiff you do anything to hurt me he said i'm not going to shoot you i'm not going to shoot on you i ain't a shooter i'm, I'm a worker he said but what i am going to do he goes is i'm going to stand up i'm going to no sell what you're doing i'm going to walk straight back here to this locker room i'm going to take my bag and I'm going to walk out this building and I'm going to walk through the crowd on my way out the front door. And when they start wanting to know what's going on, I'm going to point right at you, kid, and say, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. If you got a problem with the show ending early and you don't get your money's worth, blame him. And then I'm going to keep walking. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and I believed him when he said he would do it. <laughs> you know, I really right. believed you. That's exactly what he would have done. Uh, fortunately, the kid did what Honky Tonk called, and the match went off fine. But you know, he just—he's a funny guy. I enjoyed the, the the times I've got to share a locker room with him. I think you saw in his induction ceremony. He's become quite famous, I think, in the last oh, eight or ten years for his some of his shoot interviews, where he is not necessarily politically correct in what he says, not only generally speaking, but specifically speaking about things in the wrestling business. You know, He's had some harsh words for Bret Hart. He's had some harsh words for Shawn Michaels. Um, he's had some you know, harsh words for other top stars. But uh, I, I, think, I think that that's people misunderstand. When they see when they see that, you know, what Honky is trying to say is he's not brashing on them as hard as I think he's trying to say. You need to go back and look at the numbers we did with Hogan on top in the WWF in my heyday. They were incredible, and they may never be matched. And he's probably right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that argument's there. But I think what you saw when he got inducted is is the Wayne that I met. He's a funny guy. He's quick witted. He's intelligent. He is a good person. He cares. He cares about this business because he understands he's had a very, very good life. As he pointed out, he got to pay for his daughter going through veterinary school, which is not cheap, right, because of the wrestling business. And um, he just wants to protect that. And he's a good person. And I'm glad that he was able to show that in this induction ceremony because there has been so much controversy around him in pastures because of these shoot interviews and him saying thanks, but no thanks to the induction. Um, I, as a, as a guy who grew up a fan in that, of that era, did it lessen your thoughts or strengthen your thoughts on honky tonk, seeing him kind of out of character, accepting his induction? I was pretty much expecting what I got, you know, he mm-hmm. did. You kind of knew he was a smart guy already. Right, right. And you see, when you go back to, well, I believe it was he inducted Coco Beware a couple of years ago, and right. he had very much that same demeanor. And this time for his induction speech, I thought it was perfectly fine, given the character and the gimmick that he had. He came out for this big honor, still wearing his jumpsuit gear like you know the greatest intercontinental champion of all time, because it fits perfectly <laughs> with his, his right. character or his gimmick. You'd think that that's how the honky tonk man is always going to walk around. He's always going to be around in the Elvis jumpsuit. And, and he is going to be, and like, if, if you don't see him driving a, 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 you know, a 58 Cadillac convertible, that's pink, you're going to think something's wrong. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know Pat Patterson had, had tried to get flair to wear the robe out when he got inducted years ago and flair's like, can't do it. You know? Right. But I think for some characters it works. I think, you know, uh, we've talked about before a few years ago when the Freebirds went in, that might be some of the greatest things we've seen on WTV ever <laughs> was the Freebirds being in. And let's be honest, they let Michael Hayes turn back the clock to 1984, and he was dressing, even though he had no right to, <laughs> he right. was dressing like Michael Hayes would have been dressed in 1984 with the fanny pack and, and the boots and everything. And for, for, for what? For 20 minutes, it was 1985 and, and Dallas, Texas again. And there was nothing wrong with that, you know? Right. And I think for about 15 minutes, I think Wayne just turned the clock back, at least from the appearance wise, and said, okay, it's 1987. Doesn't matter. That's right. what you remember him for, anyways, right? Right, right, absolutely. Now, I said we were going to be brief on the next inductee. And like, like I said, I, I don't mean it to sound bad or anything like that, but Tori Wilson, you'd be hard pressed to find a bigger Tori Wilson fan than me, quite frankly. 
And <laughs> that's because um, you're a red blooded American male, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Has a and, heartbeat, <laughs> right? The the perfect woman inducted her and Stacy Keebler because, of course, they became best friends in WCW, and then they broke into WWE together. And mm-hmm. Stacy Keebler, I believe, one of her main bodies of work right now is hosting TV shows. So having her stand mm-hmm. up, her stand look into up. a camera, and tell a story is probably second nature to her now. I thought she was just fine with that. And Tori, if I recall my history, she's notable for being the first WCW talent to appear on WWE programming after the sale of WCW. Now, of course, that was so she could make out with Vince McMahon, but I don't want to get into that. Into that. I'll be jealous. So she was, she was even on before the before the infamous uh, uh, Buff Bagwell Booker T match. It wasn't right. Buff Bagwell Booker. I can't remember. Okay, right, exactly. And by her own admission, I've heard over the years, in ring work was not her strong suit. Strong suit. Yeah. Right. You know, she was more comfortable playing that playing a character, you know, playing that valet manager type. She did hosting duties as well. And I re- believe it was her guesting on Jim Ross's podcast, uh, the first one. And I think it was Jim or whether he was reading a uh, something from a newsletter or something. But basically, there was serious talk that when they were in implementing the Divas title in WWE that she would have been the inaugural Divas champion. But I believe at that time, she wasn't working actively for the company because she was recovering from back surgery. So once again, mm-hmm. you know, in-ring work wasn't her strongest suit. It's what she did less of rather than uh, being a character. And she still needed back surgery. But she left, I think, officially shortly after that back surgery so there actually was talk of putting a belt on her it just never happened yeah i I think i've been asked by some of my co-workers and friends and associates why did she go in um i seems we we have this discussion every year about somebody that people for whatever reason they don't deserve to go in i think you and me have both said it before really it's one man's opinion remember that it's it's it, it's it's Vince's opinion, and Vince does not dwell on it long. Many people in the inner circle, uh, or at one time, were in the inner circle from J.J. Dillon to Jim Ross to Jim Cornette to Bruce Pritchard have all talked about when it gets around beginning of the year, and, it, and that you know talk moves towards that. Vince will Vince will be you know one of his meetings. Well, who's going to be in the who's going to be in the Hall of Fame this year? He doesn't even have a clue. And then somebody suggests some people. Hmm, you know that's kind of how it goes, folks. Right. Um, and. I think we you have to – I'm not saying I agree with this or I disagree with it. I'm just stating it as a fact. I think we all know now there is essentially a formula that the WWE uses every year. They have the main eventer, which is somebody who was a big star, probably more current, that the, the, the vast majority of people are going to know. They've got the one legend that everybody wants to go in that hasn't gone in yet. They have a woman. They have a person of color. And they have a tag team. And they used to have a posthumous, but now it seems to be the legacy, you know, wing that covers that. And that's and then there's the Warrior Award. That's the formula, folks. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, they had to fill the woman slot, and they've essentially put in all the women from the from the Attitude Era that I think are worthy and are going to go in. They've put in all the women that they're going to put in from the '80s and that other era, you know, with you know Wendy Richter and 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 that, that you know that group. Yeah, Mula, so. Yeah. Now they're on to the next group, and you know Tories is as deserving as anybody else from that era. Uh, it was definitely not a stellar time for women's wrestling in North America. You know, most of the good wrestling by women was, was being done in Japan at that time, and quite frankly, it has been historically speaking. You know, um, 
So uh, it just is what it is. Um, you can cry foul all you want. It, it, it just is what it is. You know, I, I'm not right. going to complain. She made it farther than I did. Mm-hmm. You know, she rode up and down the roads. Like you said, she had back surgery. She paid her dues. I'm not hating on her. And if I'm somebody who was in the business and I'm not hating on her, I ask you, why are you hating on her? And you, would, you, never, you never went in the business. Totally agreed. Yeah. And also, I think, again, just my own speculation. I mean, I know that she does have a uh, fitness business now that, that she heads sure. up. That may be part of it, too. She might get some notoriety for mm-hmm. getting mm-hmm. in that Hall of Fame. People might look her up and say, "Oh, well, she's got a fitness business. Oh, okay. Well, let's let's look into this." And I hope it, you know, hope it goes well right. for him. But I think that's just what it was. Sure. It was not only just Vince saying okay on it. Um, it may have been that kind of mutually beneficial relationship situation. Deal. Yeah, because you know she's sure. not getting back into the ring anytime soon for a match. No, no, no. And and full transparency, I, I, I'm a leg man. You have some guys that are boob men, some that like rear ends. I like legs. So anytime I get to see Stacey Keebler with a dress cut all the way up to here, I'm not going to complain, okay? Because <laughs> she has gorgeous <laughs> legs. I'm, I'm, I'm being fully transparent, ladies and gentlemen. You know, if you had to put Tori in every year so I can see Stacey Keebler in that outfit, please do it. <laughs> <laughs> and who knows? You know, Tori may induct Stacey next year, you know? Right, right. Who knows? And and, and well, it's not going to be George Clooney. We can be sure of that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> right. But that brings us to the legacy people, although I will say, even though it's a current thing, when they did the camera shots to Miz and Shane and the crowd started doing the boo-yay thing, I, I actually uh-huh. chuckled at that because especially they started working it. You know, they started, they started right. working the cameras when that happened. <laughs> sure. Well, because it usually takes the talent a second to realize, oh, crap, they, they, got, the, they got the hot camera on me, you know? <laughs> right. They did a similar thing Believe with uh, Daniel Bryan as well, yeah. I, I, I've been there before. It's, it's, it sucks. <laughs> when, you, when you think you know the angle that the feed is, but you realize that they're actually getting another angle, and you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> but I digress again. Right. Now, we'll go through these legacy names here. And I think really with all of these, with the possible exception of Luna, I can see why they went in here rather than have a proper induction individually because many of these names, even the current Ardent fan that's going to pay, say, 500 bucks for a WrestleMania seat, probably are not going to know these names. And uh, Bruiser Brody, we can and probably should do an entire show dedicated to him. Uh, probably because, could do a whole show just on his death. Let's be honest. Right? Yeah. And boy, that would be just that whole that whole yeah. weekend was. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. And uh, I will tell he, you, uh, talking to Dutch Mantel about that whole situation is. Um, oh yeah. Changed my outlook on a lot. Changed my outlook on a lot of things. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, just reading his testimony about it literally would put me in tears. But yeah, he was a very much in demand heel and really. If you look, if for those of you listening who may not have seen Brody matches, if you remember the early 1990s when they had the Berserker, that was basically somebody trying to be Bruiser Brody uh, with a, with a Viking helmet on. I mean, that that's that's pretty much it. That was you know? John Nord trying to be Bruiser Brody because he was Nord the Barbarian for years for Vern, and uh, you've heard people talk about. You can watch, you can put clips of Benoit right next to clips of, of, of um, Dynamite and tell that, that that was Benoit's favorite wrestler. You can do right. the same thing with John Nord and Bruiser Brody. <laughs> you can tell that John Nord was trying to channel Bruiser Brody. 
you know, so. <clears throat> and he was a heel pretty much for his entire career. I know there was that rumor for the first WrestleMania that they wanted, they meaning Vince, they wanted Brody to do a run-in after the WrestleMania main event, set up a program with Hogan, and he turned that down. At least that's a story that I had heard. But, Knowing Brody, that doesn't shock me. Right. Uh, he was a baby face in Texas, um, mostly because usually when he came in, Abby came in with him, and they feuded each other. But he was he was portrayed on Dallas television as a as a friend of the of the Von Erich boys, which automatically makes you a baby face, right? Right. Now maybe they were going to go the route they went with with the Freebirds and have him turn on the Von Erichs because if you remember, that's how the Freebirds were brought in originally too, to Dallas. Whereas you know running buddies with the Von Erich boys and then they turned on them. Maybe that's what they were going to do, but it never happened. So that was one of the times that you know one of the rare times he was a baby face. Right. And I also remember hearing a quote from Jim Duggan, uh, probably from his time, I guess it would have been in Mid-South or maybe somewhere else, but he, Jim Duggan said that one of the best pieces of advice about working heel he got uh, from Brody. And when you look at wrestling, especially in that late 70s to mid-80s time, it absolutely fits with how matches would unfold. When you're a heel and you toss a baby face to the floor, you don't immediately climb out after him and start beating on him. You roll him out on one side and then you get out of the ring around the corner or around the other side and then do your sneak around because it's like that horror movie where the audience knows the monster's in the closet, but the person on screen doesn't. You're like, no, no, don't go there. And you're trying to wave the baby face off. Because it just tells that better story and gets that crowd reaction that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's the little things that we talk about all the time. You know, mm-hmm. um, my my Brody story actually doesn't even involve Brody because you know, sadly he had he had left us by the time I started wrestling. But uh, everyone knows that he and Stan Hansen were best friends. Uh, they were legitimately the first. I don't know if they're the first because the Funks might have been, but they were one of the first Gaijin or you know non. Japanese wrestlers to be pushed uh, in Japan. And I do believe, and I could be wrong here, I do believe they worked, I do believe they worked for Baba for all Japan. I believe they were the first North American wrestlers to be signed to full time contracts over there. Could be, um, yeah. Because I don't think the Funks ever signed full time. They just went over there and were just huge stars. Um, and it's available on YouTube. Look up the Funks versus versus Brody and Hanson. And you talk about a, a brawl. That's just four guys beating the crap out of each other. But um, uh, I, I've discussed when we when, uh, the episode where we reviewed the Hall of Fame where Stan went in, and I told you my 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 dealings with Stan Hanson, who I love and uh, uh, you know just adore dearly. Great, sweet, sweet man. I know it's crazy. You never thought you'd hear the word sweet and Stan Hansen in the same sentence. But right. uh, Stan told me one time, it was a later show than after I had I'd already met Stan and developed a bit of a friendship with him. And we happened to be working another show. And in the course of our conversation, it came up that I had been involved uh, in a barroom brawl <laughs> after a show with several other wrestlers. Uh, wow, shocker. Pro wrestlers getting in a brawl at, in a bar after a show. You've never heard of that before, right? Mm-hmm. And Stan asked me what I had done, and I related what it, how, how everything had gone down. And he said, do you want to know how to get out of that? And I said, I would love to know how to get out of that, but I'm not six foot nine like you, Stan. <laughs> you know? And he kind of just chuckled, and he said, let me tell you what Brody used to do. 
He said, you know, you, he goes, you obviously been around long enough. You know, when the guy that's had a few too many and wants to start trouble, I said, well, yes, sir. He said, well, obviously Frank, cause Frank Goodish was bruiser Brody's real name. He said, Frank knew that too. And believe me, Frank Goodish, Bruiser Brody was not a guy you wanted to mess with outside of the ring. He was a legitimate tough guy. I think everybody knows that. You know, he could very much handle himself on top of the fact he was a huge man. Um, but Brody would know this. And he said, you know, Brody would walk over to the guy and the guy would usually start with the, you think you're tough. I bet I can beat you up. Something of that nature. And Brody would always say to him, you know what, buddy, you're probably right. So let's not worry about it. What are you drinking? I'll buy you around. And then Brody'd buy him a drink, talk to him, and in five minutes it was diffused, and and it cost Brody what three four dollars for to buy the guy a beer, right? Two three four dollars, and it was over with. Didn't have to spend a night in jail. Didn't have to hurt a guy. Didn't have to go to court weeks later. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, if one of the most legitimate tough men to ever strap on a pair of boots in this business could walk away from a street fight and save face like that, then why can't I? Kill him with kindness, as they say. Yeah. And this is years after the man's death, and he's still influencing people because of a story like that from his best friend to another young guy in the business. I don't think I can sing his praises anymore, you know? Right. Now, next up on the list was never a wrestler, but he was a very famous, very uh, uh, accomplished booker and promoter, and that's Jim Barnett. You know, my boy. You know, how <laughs> my many... boy, my boy. <laughs> oh, Seth, Seth, you're beautiful, Seth. Those lovely cheeks. I just want to squeeze them. Oh, beautiful. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did hear the story of people when they would work for Jim Barnett that they would give him their idea of what they're going to do. And if Barnett liked the idea, he'd reach into his pocket, you know, probably say my boy a few times and hand the guy like a hundred dollar bill or something like that. Cause he knows, okay, this is going <laughs> to yeah. make money. So, you know, so I'm going to pay you up money. front. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But Once again, yet another another individual we probably need to dedicate an entire show to. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And now there, there was at least three areas where he was successful. Uh, you know, obviously there was the South. Uh, he had a promotion in Australia, and I think there was mm-hmm. one other area that he was successful in as a promoter. New York. Mm-hmm. He worked for he worked for Vince when the first WrestleMania. Mostly because he was mad at, at Turner and left the South, but I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, well, you, well I, I've told the story before how he originally started out promoting like Ohio, Northern Kentucky, you know, that area that was kind of in between uh, uh, WWA out of Indianapolis and the far end of Memphis in the Ghoulist days. And that he kind of got in trouble there because he was an openly gay man in the 1960s and he was throwing these crazy parties uh, there. Uh, just off campus in Lexington and uh, had people like Rock Hudson. And this is long before people knew Rock Hudson was gay and apparently some politicians, uh, you know, attending these parties and then having the football players from the university of Kentucky there as uh, shall we say entertainment that <laughs> that doesn't fly today. It really didn't fly in the 1960s, you know, uh, but that was when he got out of Dodge and went to Australia and the original world championship wrestling was his territory in Australia. And I think I've brought it up before that territory at the time. First off, he had the entire continent, not just a country, a continent. So he had pretty much, I mean, he had the whole continent to himself. It was the premier territory in its day, heyday. Every top talent in the world, North American, Japanese, European came through there, except for Dust, Dist, Dusty and Dick, only because 
he was very much about it being presented on the real, and these guys were going to carry themselves like professionals to the point where he expected all his talent to wear a suit coat and a tie outside of the ring. Well, Dusty and Dick were not going to do that. <laughs> and that's the only reason that they refused to go there. And they even said, you know, we know we're losing money, but but we're we're just good old boys from Texas and we ain't going to do it. You know, so uh, but I, my understanding is, you know, he was in he was involved with brokering, helped to broker the deal between Crockett and Turner in 89. And it was because he he did own the name World Championship Wrestling that it morphed into that. Because he owned the rights, okay, from his days in, in in Australia. But he, when he came back from Australia in the seventies, he based himself in Atlanta. He was a well educated man. He had saved his money. He invested. He just ran in those circles. You know, he was a very creative, artistic guy. He always knew who to rub shoulders with. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to the point of he was he was on Jimmy Carter's um, arts council when Jimmy Carter was president in the late seventies. Because he ran in those circles in the Atlanta area. So Jimmy Carter knew him being from Georgia, you know, knew that he knew museum owners and and real life artists. And, you know, uh, that was just who he was. He knew that was the kind of guy Jim Barnett was. It's so funny to think of this flamboyantly, openly gay man in the South uh, in the, you know, the 60s and 70s, uh, who, but still rubbed shoulders with people like Ted Turner and people like. You know, these famous like people that ran museums and people that were presidents and deans of major universities. That was his circle of friends. Yet he was also a big wig in the pro wrestling world. That's that is an odd combination, isn't it? <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. But because of that, he did know a lot of people in the entertainment f- industry and in television, especially. So you can see why people like Vince McMahon and like the Crockett's always turned to Jim Barnett. Jim Barnett was the embodiment of it's not what you know it's who you know and he didn't mind being a heel if a guy sucked or a guy wasn't going to make you make money he would flat out tell them to their face and did not care about firing them and i know that makes him seem mean-spirited but when you're a pure businessman that's what has to be done sometimes doesn't it yeah so i mean barnett's a fascinating here we probably do need to do a whole show on jim barnett but th- th- should have been in the hall of fame long ago right. long ago yeah, if nothing else, he pretty much helped Vince create WrestleMania one. That in and of itself is forget all the other things he did, you know? Right. Now, next on the list was Hisashi Shinma. I hope I'm saying that correct. But I think so. <laughs> he, I won't correct you if you aren't. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was most known in his career as being a former booker for New Japan in the seventies. I believe he was with the company when they opened up and essentially were featuring Inoki as their main attraction, even though Inoki was essentially, you know, part of the staff there as well, part of the part of management. Right. But, well, uh, he broke off from Ricky Dozen to start it. I mean, that was kind of the history of New Japan. Right. And he was the on-screen president of WWF in the late 70s up until the national expansion under Vince in 84, where Jack Tunney took that spot. And uh, one thing we I think we can explain here for those that may not know is there, Jack Tunney was not actually the president of the World Wrestling Federation. No. It was an on-screen title. He was talent. What Jack Tunney did was he was a promoter from Canada who essentially Vince, for lack of a better term, essentially bought out, and then he just got a, uh, an on-air gig out of it. Right. The, t- the Tunneys were former wrestlers who went on to be promoters, 
you know, like, oh, say, Bill Watts, Eddie Graham, the list goes on, right? <laughs> right. And his territory was Buffalo, New York, Niagara, so like upper state New York, and into Canada. And for years, they had a deal with the Crockett's. And that's why you would sometimes see Crockett talent work shows, even in the 70s, up there. And then he, when, when the national expansion came, um, he, they decided to go with Vince, which really made more sense because, I mean, his territory in the Northeast was adjacent to theirs, whereas the Crockett's were having to send guys from the South. You right. know? That's probably a plane and, and ride I, I, or a very long car ride. Yeah, that's true. And mm-hmm. probably, probably, you know, another thing, too, I don't know about this. I would have to check, but I do think that some of it involved with, and we brought this up before, that maybe Jim Jr. was not was not as popular with the Tunney brothers as uh, as Big Jim was. Mm-hmm. But you know, you've heard that those kind of stories before. I do know that Jim Jr. Crockett was was could be a bit of a polarizing uh, figure. You know, either you liked him or you didn't like him. But everybody liked Big Jim, so you know. Okay, yeah. The other thing about Shinma that he's probably most known for in, in the record books was he did have the relationship with WWE or WWF at the time, and WWF did do a tour of Japan, which kind of worked with New Japan. And in 1979, Antonio Noki beat the then WWF champion Bob Backlund in Japan. And they did a rematch where Backlund supposedly won it back, but the title was... I think never recognized vacant, over here. Right, right. It, it 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 was on air in Japan, I believe, listed as being vacant, and then Backlund just beat it. I believe it was Bobby Duncan Senior in, in a uh, match afterwards. But on WWE TV and essentially WWE's record books, that de- that never happened, and that was not an uncommon practice in those days. Because oh no, obviously the internet. Harley, Harley Harley and Rick would flip the title when they would go overseas like that. Baba right. would win the title from somebody and then lose it back again before the, the American champion came back here to the States. It happened all the time, not just in the WWE. The NWA did it too. You know, Of course, when Harley and Rick would do it, they wouldn't even tell the office. <laughs> it's like, then they would get in trouble because, you know, who was it? One of the territory promoters just happened to be on vacation there and saw it and got word, got back to the office in St. Louis. And, Whoops. <laughs> oh, well. I guess the best way to put it is that's what, I most know uh, Shinma from. And besides him being, I believe, one of two people that were inducted for Legacy that are actually still alive. Uh, right. At least I think he's still alive. But they mentioned the infamous uh, Muhammad Ali uh, fight as well. So I'll let you talk about that. I mean, I, that's only, I think, I'd, I don't think that's the only thing I'd ever heard of him for, you know? Uh, being a Southerner, I didn't watch WWE programming until many years later after the national expansion, so I would not have been watching their television at the time he was the on-air president, you know. But I do know from my history, from my you know from my historical standpoint, me being a an amateur historian of wrestling, that he was the Japanese behind-the-scenes guy, you know, broker in that Inoki um, Ali thing, which makes sense, you know. Um, I mean, if he's one of the top guys with the Japanese promotion at the time. He would be involved in the in the booking and promoting of you know essentially what was the many people say was the first MMA fight right <laughs> and it just happened to involve the biggest Japanese wrestling pro wrestling star at the time so you know probably if no other reason forget all the WWE stuff that alone probably makes him worthy of Hall of Fame induction because that was a, a big time fight for as lackluster as as it was received and and it was it was still a big deal and still is a big deal if you think about it you know right but moving on from that the 
next person they they brought up, well, the the list you you could say was Luna Bashan. I mean, I do think it's possible they could have given her uh, a proper induction with somebody doing a speech for her. Maybe they did it this the way they did because they already had Tori Wilson or whether they would need somebody to do the talking. But obviously, Luna Vachon only passed away uh, the last 10 years or so. So I think there would be some of those fans of the Attitude Era that would remember her. But uh, you knew her a little bit. How, how do you remember Luna Vachon? You're, you're right, Seth. One of my favorite matches probably of my entire career, like top five of my entire career, actually involved Luna Vachon. As many of our listeners know, I was trained by an independent from around here by the name of Bubba Kirk, whose wife was also a, a wrestler who wrestled under the name Tracy Richards. And sadly, Tracy's no longer with us either. Um, but Tracy and Luna were very, very close. They both broke into the business around the same time in the floor in Florida. They both worked for Moolah back in the day. Uh, both of them's first trip to Japan was uh, the same tour. So Luna and and Debbie or Tracy was her, like I said, was her uh, wrestling name. We're very close. And we wrestled for a promoter in southern Georgia who brought Luna and Gangrel uh, in when they were still married uh, right after their run with Vince and decided to book the two of them against me and Tracy in a mixed tag match for the main event. And um, watching Luna and Debbie just, I mean, they're women. No, I don't mean that in a bad way. You know how two women are that are close friends that haven't seen each other in a long time. You can imagine what that reunion was like in the locker room, especially knowing they were going to get to wrestle each other. Right. So me and Dave are just kind of sitting back watching them talk about all this stuff and showing pictures of the kids and all that kind of thing. And uh, Dave, that Gangrel's real name is David Heath, for those who don't know, Dave looks at me and he said, do you really want to work tonight? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I say we go out there, do a couple spots, tag them in, let them beat the crap out of each other, and we'll just watch from the ring apron. We'll have the best seats in the house. <laughs> I said, you know what, brother? That sounds like a plan to me. And that's exactly what we did. <laughs> and so, you know, me and Dave went in there. We did a couple of spots. We t- I tagged Tracy. He tagged Luna. And then they beat the crap out of each other. For about, and, the, and the audience loved it because it was two good-looking women beating the crap out of each other. Right? <laughs> so, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, and... When it was over, Luna just she was so sweet. Just you know, give me, and that that voice is was was a that raspy voice was not a work. She accentuated it more in her promos, but she really did have a low raspy voice naturally, you know. And she just gave me a big old hug and a kiss on the cheek. Said, "Kid, I love you." That was so much fun, you know. And she just I just she was a sweetheart of a person. I got to know Luna well after that. Um, she thought the world of me because you know I was trained by one of her friends' husbands. So. Um, I can't say anything bad about Luna. She was an incredible worker. She had a great look. Um, you take off the crazy makeup and the shaved head, which she originally did to be turned heel, you know, and join Sullivan's Army of Darkness down in Florida. She was a white meat baby face before that. And if you've ever seen this picture, Luna is a very attractive woman, you know. Uh, that's why they called the gimmick the Fallen Angel. That's essentially what she was supposed to be. Was like you know this this white meat baby face that had been corrupted by the the devil himself to steal a line from Dusty Rhodes and Kevin Sullivan, you know. And um, I think most of our listeners know her from her you know her runs with the oddities and Vince and the stuff she did with Tommy Dreamer and ECW. But she had a long storied career, but well before that in the territories in Japan. She's wrestling royalty. She's from the Vashans, 
you know, Paul Butcher Vachon was her father. Mad Dog Vachon was her was her uncle. Vivian Vachon was her aunt. She's she's from wrestling royalty. She's um she's and she her personality truly belied the character that she was she portrayed often on camera. You know, she was a sweetheart of a person. I cannot say anything bad about Luna Vachon. She was just really one of the sweetest, most sincere people I've ever met in the wrestling business. And she is sorely missed because she did. She was old school and she did not take a lot of crap. You know, she was she was a Vachon. She was tough. You know, Mm -hmm. she was not someone to be crossed with. Part of the reason that she got gone from the WWE is and I think this is true of women in general. Women smell out BS faster than men do, especially when it's coming from other women. And she smelled the BS of Sable out really quick and called her on it. You know, women always figure out the truth. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Han Solo. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's exactly how Luna would say it, too, with about that kind of husky of voice, you know. I mean, she always did sound like she had just chain smoked about three packs of cigarettes back to back to back. But that was just naturally her voice, you know. And she was a phenomenal shape, dude. I mean, she could go and never get blown up, and she was tough. And like I said, I don't have anything bad to say about Luna. She should have been in the Hall of Fame a long time ago, especially on the weekend that they're having the women main event WrestleMania for the first time. She truly was a trailblazer. I put her in that same category with you know Medusa and Sherry when there, was, there wasn't a whole lot of great women's wrestlers in our country, and they were some of the few. You know, and uh, I, I, I guarantee you all the women of that era, ask them what they think about Luna Vachon and you'll, they'll echo my sentiments. Just the sweetest person. And and was she was but she was a straight shooter. Don't ask her for her opinion because you were going to get it. They also brought up Buddy Rose, who probably is best known for WWE as being the executioner in the first WrestleMania, you know, losing to. Tito Santana, which I think would go on to be Tito's only WrestleMania victory. But uh, Buddy Rose, he became a star first, I think, really, where you know he got the, the most stardom early on, was in Portland. Uh, he and Roddy Piper were probably the biggest respective babyfaces and heels at that time, right? Oh, yeah. But he had a monster run in, in the North, Northwest. That was, you know, Buddy was a, a unique character. Um, he was so good at what he did, Buddy. I guess the best way to describe Buddy Rose, if you've never seen him work is I'm going to give credit where credit's due is the way that Dave Meltzer described him one time when he said, you know, that guy that you grew up with in your neighborhood, there was always a little bit of the fat chunky kid, but you couldn't beat him in anything athletic. He beat you at darts. He beat you at riding, jumping your bike at shooting basketball, whatever it was. He looked like he shouldn't be an athlete, but anything athletic he could do. I'm sure everybody knows somebody like that, right? Yes. You know, that was Playboy Buddy Rose. He was this guy who looked nothing like an athlete, was was really very overweight. And I mean, to the point where it was kind of jiggly and like, you know, like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. kind That's of exactly chunky. the reference I was going to make, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yet he did these. I mean, when he would take hip tosses, he would get so high in the air, you know, and take these huge big bumps and he would go up so high for back body drops and he'd do beautiful leapfrogs and he could do the the multi crossovers, you know, step over, drop down, get up, you know, and just and and then he he incorporated that into his gimmick. He was this fat dude who was doughy, wasn't that good looking, who called himself a playboy, you know, and he would do this great stuff where he would carry up a. a a, a scale to the ring and talk about he would he'd put on some weight he was only 173 pounds going into this 
and stuff <laughs> like that. And, and there was a gimmick they ran for a while that had to involve a weight a weight limit, you know. And he would throw a temper tantrum when he would be like a half a pound overweight. It was just great, great stuff, you know. And and it was entertaining as hell. You could see how it drew heel heat. Um, you could see how even today. Of course, there's that small segment of fans that would accuse him of fat shaming, but to heck with them. Everybody else would get it and say, this is entertaining as hell and laugh their asses off, you know, and he just he was a trailblazer and he was one of those guys. I don't think Vince was ever going to look at because of his look. He did a lot with Adrian Adonis, you know, doing essentially the same thing as adorable Adrian Adonis, but he did the androgynous thing and put him in dresses. That was never Buddy Rose. I mean, Buddy Rose was the nature boy, Ric Flair, just a fat version of it, you know. Right. It worked. He could work. There are a lot of guys from that era who talk about working Buddy Rose as like a night off. And I'm talking guys like Roddy Piper and guys like Ric Flair saying, you know, getting in the ring with Buddy Rose was like a night off. That I think probably says all you can say when guys like that are singing your praises in ring. And I just think, you know, he was probably about five to ten years too late. If he'd have come about five or ten years earlier, he probably would have had a more of a run in multiple territories but he was a territory guy running a territory gimmick at a time that the territories were dying and the one guy who was growing national at that point was just not going to look at a guy that did comedy or worked his gimmick and that's sad because he probably deserved it because no offense to the guys that vince had when he went national buddy rose is probably talented more talented than about half of them as far as in-ring psychology and and just pure in-ring work he just didn't have a look you know right they also have Primo Carnera, who was a professional uh-huh. boxer, very accomplished boxer, 89 and 14 record, uh, had a high-profile uh-huh. match with Joe Lewis, and he also did wrestle. So he's one of those people, they're probably honoring him in the way as he might have been the first or one of the first crossover stars from other combat sports. You know, right. I, I believe he even had a short program with Luthez during one of Lou's reigns, so that should tell you what the NWA promoters thought of him, you know? Um, I also think that I don't know that much about him, but he was one of those names that I'm sure you'll, you can relate to this growing up when you read the after mags, that would be a name that would pop up every once in a while when they would talk about old legends, you know? Right. So uh, I don't, I'm not even sure what territory he was even based out of, but I would guess off of his, uh, a name that ethnic, I'm guessing probably somewhere in the Northeast, Philadelphia, New York, Pittsburgh, probably. But, um, right. Hey, if you had a, if you had a boxing match with Joe Lewis and a wrestling match with Luthez, you don't need to say anything else to me. You've, you've improved yourself. End of story. <laughs> yeah, you're you're legit. Mm-hmm. Toru Tanaka, and for WWE alone, he is probably best known for that tag team run in the 1970s with Mr. Fuji, where they were multi-time tag champions. And I went and looked up his body of work because I'd heard the name, but I guess just didn't know the name that well. And this may not be an exhaustive list, but these are the lists of titles that Professor Toru Tanaka won. 50th State Big Time Wrestling, NWA North American Heavyweight Champion. Uh, ACCW Tag Team Champion with Peter Maivia Jr., who I don't know if that's Rocky or not, but uh, California Pro Wrestling, CPW Heavyweight Championship, CPW Brass Knuckles, NWA Florida Tag Champion with Dick Slater, AWA Southern Tag Team Championship with Mr. Fuji, NWA... Georgia heavyweight champion, NWA Macon heavyweight champion, NWA Georgia tag team champion with Mr. Fuji, Caribbean heavyweight champion, NWA Southeastern heavyweight champion, NCW heavyweight champion, NWA American heavyweight, uh, 
American Tag Team Champion with Thunderbolt Patterson, NWA Brass Knuckles Champion, NWA America's Heavyweight Champion, NWA America's Tag Team Champion, <laughs> British Empire, uh, Southeastern Tag Team Champion with Mr. Fuji, IWA Heavyweight, IWA Tag Team Champion, and then, of course, WWWF International Tag Team Championship and the WWWF at the time Tag Team Championship three times with Mr. Fuji. So that's a Hall of Fame career right there, folks. Oh, yeah. As you can tell, he was in almost every major territory in the NWA and held titles in every territory he went to. So he was a main event star. Um, my understanding, uh, I know he had a, a, a somewhat successful career as a character actor in movies after his wrestling career. Most people around our age will remember him as Sub-Zero, the uh, ice skating stalker from The Running Man, not the Sub-Zero from Mortal Kombat, you know, Um and I believe, and I could be wrong here, but my understanding is that the character of Oddjob was was originally uh, uh, pitched to him, and he turned it down. But the character of Oddjob of, from Goldfinger was modeled after after Tuber Tanaka. I had so, heard that story. I don't think I've ever confirmed it on my own, though. Yeah, uh, I know this from guys that worked the worked the Northeast for Vince's father in the seventies. Uh, we have brought up before on the show the term policeman. A policeman. For those that have not heard those shows, and I'll refresh those that have, a policeman is a guy who is a legit tough guy, probably a shooter and or a hooker, but might just be a legit tough guy whose job in the days of kayfabe was to met out punishment or, you know, punishment. So the word I can think of, <laughs> I can't right. think of another good word to talent who did not want to cooperate or get along with the line. So in other words, the promoter would go to him and say, rough the guy up a little bit. That's what Fuji and Tanaka were. For, the, for Vince's father in the 70s. Um, I think the Samoans filled that role later on. Four right. guys that probably were pretty good at handling that. <laughs> yeah. Just leave and it at that. I you know? think uh, <laughs> Dr. D was one of those people too, right? David Schultz? He, he, he sure was in the, in the waning days of, of Vince Sr. Uh, but, but one of the more famous stories you'll hear from veterans in the business about Professor Tanaka was he liked to really test guys. Um, you know, this is, you know, we've talked before about, you know, about the Bob Roops and the Hiro Matsudas and the, the, the Gene and Ole Andersons, these guys that legitimately understood like pressure points and new shoot holds and, and at, Stu Hart falls in this category who legitimately found self gratifying entertainment through hurting people. I mean, I know that sounds sadistic, but it's what it is. Turu was one of those guys. Okay. One of his favorite things to do to test a young guy when they would get in the ring with them, and he usually did it during television tapings, by the way. I, I, need, to, I need to iterate that fact. He would, early in the match when you would lock up with him, he would dislocate one of your fingers on purpose, which he knew how to do because he was like a second or third degree black belt in judo. He had a knowledge of jujitsu, so he knew a lot of these legitimate submission holds, you know, arm bars, joint manipulations. Uh, jiu-jitsu would be the small joint because we don't do small joint j manipulation in uh, judo. But he would pop your finger out of joint. And then depending on how well you reacted to that and how well you did throughout the match would determine whether he popped it back in socket for you or not before the end of the match. If you made him mad, you were going home with a dislocated finger or to the ER. If he liked you and you did okay, put it back in for you before, it was, before the match was over. Yeah, that's the world of wrestling in the 1970s. And you wonder why guys from earlier eras look at the guys today and go wimps. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's that's why we say that, you know, <laughs> really. I've, I've paid my dues. How long you been wrestling, kid? Four years. Shut up. <laughs> no, 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 you haven't. No, you haven't. Shut up. 
But I think that's true of every. I'm sure that, I know there's guys from the generation before mine saying you guys had it so easy. <laughs> now, SD Jones, he might be most famous on WWE history books as he was in that infamous squash by King Kong Bundy at the original WrestleMania, which of course ultimately led to Bundy versus Hogan the following year. And it was also mm-hmm. the longest nine seconds in the history of time because they, the official time was nine seconds, but it was a lot longer than that. But uh, <laughs> that, had, what, that had to be minus ring introductions. <laughs> right. Now, what I will recommend for people who may have not heard of Special Delivery Jones or maybe heard the name, didn't see his body at work. First off, there's a lot of stuff out there on YouTube and such. And I think this is on the WWE Network from the mid-2000s. He did the induction speech for Tony Atlas. And that man... They're friends. Yeah. They're real-life yeah. friends. Right. And he just had a way of speaking, which makes sense. He's a worker. He had a very interesting, captivating speech for Tony Atlas. Plus, I just love the way he would refer to Tony and his friends as boss man. But it's a very... When you saw that speech, you just wanted to walk up to S.D. Jones, shake his hand, and tell him how awesome he was. That's the best way I can sum up what I thought S.D. Jones was like. <laughs> you know, for, for me, my memories, once again, growing up here, he being a Northwest, North, being Northeast guy, I don't remember that much about him. I just remember him being billed, and, and I can still hear Howard Finkel's voice in my head, which I just thought was cool. He was always billed as from Antigua in the Lesser Antilles. I just thought that was awesome when I was a kid. I don't know why. And he did kind of play up the Caribbean vibe because I know he worked a lot in like, you know, very bright tropical colored trunks and boots. Um, And uh, I I don't know. Maybe I'm biased because I'm, you know, I'm a Carolina guy. Rufus R. the freight train Jones is from Dillon, South Carolina, and he was a big star here in this territory. I guess my bias always was, oh, he there, he's just a knockoff of Rufus Jones, you know, the special delivery freight train. I, that's not true, but in my 12 or 13-year-old mind, I think that's how I saw it, you know? <laughs> right, right. But I don't think that's fair. I think that um, my, my knowledge now that I've been in the business, that those guys that Vince – and Vince's father uses enhancement talent in, in the set, late 70s, early 80s. The S.D. Jones, the Baron uh, Mikhail Cicluna, the, the Johnny Rods, those guys could work, you know? Right. And a lot of them went to other territories for runs and were top guys, you know? Right. Johnny Rods comes to mind. He was, Pez Watley, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Buddy Rose and the Portland Territory, Johnny Rods, who is probably most well-known for training the Dudleys, or at least at least uh, Bubba Ray and Taz, and he is a WWE Hall of Famer. Well, he was he was an enhancement talent on Vince's TV, but when he goes to Portland, he's in the main event as Java Rook doing a doing a you know like an evil uh, chic esque gimmick and was over like crazy. So don't think for a minute these guys didn't know how to draw and didn't know how to work. You know, um, I don't know if SD ever had one of those runs, but I would not be shocked if he did. You know, um, right? He just he's he was he was from the Northeast. He had a home up there. I'm sure he had – you know, it, it, it goes back to the um, – I think I've talked about this before and some of the things the Fullers and the Armstrongs told me when I first broke into the business. You know, kid, find a place that you like, a home you can afford with schools that you're happy your kid's going to. Put your wife and your kids there. Go on the road. Send all your money home and live like a hermit on the road. Save your money. I get a feeling that S.D. Jones was just one of those guys. I mean, he why he was making good money working for Vince's dad. His ego was in check enough. He didn't care that he lost on TV all the time. 
he probably had a home and a place he liked in the Northeast, and why would he leave? Right. You know? Kind of like, uh, you know, Nick Bockwinkle, essentially. You know, he yeah. could have worked for Vince, and I think he would have worked well with Vince, but he was already making good money in the AWA. You know, why? It might have been a pay raise to go to Vince, but if he's happy with what he's making and he doesn't have to work as much, you can totally understand him saying where he was. Well, well, every time this comes up, don't you and I make a defense of Jerry Lawler in Memphis and the Andersons and the Carolinas in Georgia for the same thing? Exactly, yeah. Well, everybody talks about, well, they never went anywhere else. Well, why would you when you're main eventing in two of the best territories in the country and making good money? Okay, so S.C. Jones isn't main eventing. He's still probably making good money in one of the best territories in the world. Why would he leave? Right. There's there's a lot to be said about about um, enjoying where you live and enjoying where you where you work and who you work with. And wrestling is a business where that doesn't always happen when you're when you're hopping from territory to territory every six months. You know, makes sense. Yeah. Now Wahoo McDaniel, I'll 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 say this. You can say whatever you want here, Train. Uh, we did do an <laughs> entire show on Wahoo. It's check out volume twenty. I will link that in the show notes for this volume number twenty seven. The only thing I'll say and. I said it on that show. They did show a picture of his football card from the mid-1960s, and I remember asking you, and you said yes, that look that Wahoo had on his face on that card, that was like the Wahoo you knew, right? That's Chief. Yeah. that That's Chief. I, I did not tell a story I wanted to tell when we did that one, and so I'll go ahead and tell it now because I don't know when I'll ever have another chance to tell a Wahoo story again, though I'm sure he will come up many more times uh, on Classic Wrestling Memories. Um, as I talked about in the episode, you know, I became very close to chief. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't admit, I really wanted to see this as a normal induction, not a legacy induction. Um, because his son is still alive. His son could accept for him. And we know he, they probably would have gotten flair to induct him. And who doesn't want to see Ric Flair talk, talk, you know, I mean, come on. It's, it's, <laughs> and then there's the whole personal factor for me because he was my friend and a mentor. Um, but, uh, I said then, and I still stand by it, pound for pound, he might be the greatest pure athlete ever in professional wrestling. And I'm including people like Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar on that list. So, yeah, he was that awesome of a, of a man's man. But I brought up the fact he liked to fish, and we would go fishing a lot. Of all the great athletic things that Chief could do and was able to do, even well into his later years, even when he was on dialysis and sick, he could still do some of these things. The man couldn't swim. He never learned how to swim. And we would get out, and I knew this fact, and we would get out on the bass boat out in the middle of Lake Greenwood, and I would start shaking the boat. <laughs> and he would get so mad. He's like, kid, I can't swim. I know that. If you make me go in this water, when we get to the shore, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and I would, I would just, I would, well, don't worry, chief. I, I, I was a lifeguard. I'll save you. Don't, I ain't going in this water, kid. You understand me? <laughs> he would get, get a little hot, you know? He would get a little, and that was just my way of messing with him. And the fact that he let me get away with that and didn't beat the crap out of him when we made it to shore made me feel like, okay, he really is my friend. Because let's be honest, if you had tried that, Seth, he would have punched you when you got in the shoreline. You know that. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I said it then. I'll say it again. I can't sing the praises of Wahoo McDaniel enough. He never, ever, ever got the credit he deserved for what he did for this business. And I miss him and think about him every day. I love you, Chief. Thank you for everything you did. And you finally earn a Hall of Fame. You deserve to be there. Joe Cohen was never a wrestler, was never an on-screen talent or anything like that. So can't really say much about him, although he was shown in the crowd. So, again, somebody who was still alive and getting the Legacy Award. But that was probably pretty much because he helped start 
the MSG network and was influential in starting the USA network. So those two channels there, if they hadn't come around, the WWE wouldn't have become what it, what it was. They, they were instrumental in that national expansion. Right. Were- I, I think people tend to forget uh, when you think of Cohen, <laughs> MSG network. I mean, I, you can find it on the net. You can find it on the network still. I think I think I'm correct. You correct me if I'm wrong, Seth. But I mean, they essentially had their own WWE show for years, even after the national expansion. That was just in the New York area. Isn't that correct? Yes, yes. I believe it was the effectively the house shows that would run. Like back in the days when you would see Sean Mooney or Mean Gene do the local promotion for the house show that's coming to your town. I think those in Madison Square Garden would go on the MSG network, so you can actually see matches between Hogan and Flair right at the beginning when Flair was doing the real world champion bit Shit. and yeah. yeah and they would actually show those matches uh, and I mean I, they I, even I, made I think a video I don't them, think yeah I think some of those are available like not under Madison Square Garden Network but I think if you look what do they call the hidden gems yes. stuff like that I think some of those are those matches and I, and I think a lot I think the announce team for a lot of those back in the day was I want to say Lord Al Hayes and and uh, a gorilla, wasn't it? I believe it was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was gorilla, and then maybe just they might have had different uh, color commentators. Bob, Bobby did some, but I'm I'm almost positive I've seen a few with Lord Al Hayes as the announcer, who I think is an underrated announcer, by the way. Yeah, I agree. And that brings us to the end of the legacy inductees. They did have the Warrior Award for a, a woman who did a lot of backstage work, which I think is fitting because Warrior conceived the idea of that award being for people who did a lot of work backstage who you never saw. And right. uh, Sue, and I'm hoping I'm saying the name right, uh, Aitchison, she did a lot of the deals between WWE and charities, you know, like the Make-A-Wish Foundation and all that stuff. So that's really why she got that award. Which I think is, you know, part of the surprise of her induction was that John Cena came out, which if you know John Cena's sister with Make-A-Wish, that totally makes sense. I'm sure she's worked with John a lot. You know? Makes sense, yeah, yeah. And, and whatever you feel about John Cena, I've said it before, and I'm gonna say it again now. I think Seth will second my my thoughts. Whatever you think about John Cena, wrestling wise, you cannot lie. That dude has done a brother has done a ton of work charity wise, and I think it's very sincere. I think he actually does care about advance. Yeah, I, I I agree. Well, we can't continue this list without bringing up the elephant in the room that happened in the next induction, the Hart Foundation. And we did do a show about Jim the Anvil Neidhart on volume 23, which again, I will link in the show notes for this volume 27. I still list one of my favorite tag team matches as being the Hart Foundation versus Demolition at SummerSlam 1990. Yep. And I also agree with the statement that Brett said George Scott had about you know Brett wanting to turn heel and become the Hart Foundation, and George Scott said, "You're a baby face if I ever saw one." And <laughs> yeah. Brett and his look at yourself yeah. in the mirror, kid. <laughs> yeah, he had that action hero look to him. And the only other thing I'll say, and I know you can add to this a whole lot more than I can, uh, if you look on the network now, you're not going to see it. You basically have to resort to cell phone footage that's getting yanked off of YouTube and such. But some buddy some mid-20s or something like that jumped onto the ring or the stage and bum rushed bret hart and it was quickly taken care of like literally a matter of seconds (laughs) and i don't have to tell you train uh because you've talked about it off 
off mic about Bret Hart being on that don't, and I'll use the, the easy word, mess with people like Bret Hart. Because Bret Hart, he may be 61 years old. He may have had two strokes and cancer. That kid better get on his knees and thank God that Bret Hart did not get his hands on him. Yeah. Uh, I, I think this is as good a time to any as to mention this because uh, it, I think it, it contributed to this unfortunate incident was the setup was different this year as opposed to having, you know, the big stage and then the, in a normal crowd. They did this in a theater of the round. They didn't take the ring down from the NXT show the night before, just took down one side of the ropes, put a podium in the middle and essentially had the host, which I also want to comment, this year was not Jerry the King Lawler, was was Corey Graves and Renee Young. And no offense to Corey and Renee, I like both of them. It just kind of missed something for me without Jerry. I think you said the same thing off mic, did yeah. you not? Yeah, I've heard King say that it's one of his favorite nights of the year, and I believe him when he says it, because he probably gets to talk to people he only gets to talk to that one day of the year. And I remember before it was him, you know, that was often uh, mean Gene, and sadly, we don't have Gene with us anymore. And just, you know, I just feel like, and like I said, once again, this is not a bash on Corey Graves or Renee Young. I think they both did a good job of what they were asked to do. They just don't bring the class to it that I thought Gene and Jerry do. Just my opinion, okay? Right. And I also didn't like the setup. I, 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 I've never performed theater in the round. I have performed theater in the round in a wrestling ring or on a football field or in a basketball court. But that's different. That's a spectator sport. I have never I've done theater and I've never done theater in the round. And I would imagine it would be difficult, you know, as, as, if nothing else for for movement, because, I mean, upstage, downstage, stage, right, stage left completely changes because it doesn't exist in theater of the round unless you, you know, you understand what I'm saying. So right, right. It, it, I, I didn't like the look myself personally. I, part of the, what I like about it was we always got to see the current stars and the and, and, the, and the former inductees and their families sitting in the front row in the crowd and you could see them a little bit but it was harder to see in this theater of the round thing because they were essentially sitting on the ringside seats but i do think that that setup contributed to this 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 the ability for this guy to uh you know get past security and make it to the podium uh what I say agree. ye on that Seth? yeah yeah i agree because he basically came from behind right like he like he, like he came in essentially from like one of the corner ring posts right, right. You know, which he wouldn't have been able to do if it was a traditional stage mm-hmm he only have one way to get there, and he probably would have got caught long before he got there. Um, and and I will also say, you know, it's um, – I asked you this after I watched it. Uh, why Bret Hart? You know, why – besides the fact of what you just pointed, probably not the guy you want to mess with. Bret is so beloved by both people in and out of the business. You know, he is not one of those WWE stars that the hardcore purist fans don't like. They actually do like him, you know. And then the casuals like him and the, all the guys in the business like him. Even even the well-publicized feud on and off screen that he's had with, with Shawn Michaels, Shawn Michaels will openly admit and has many times he's a man's man and a hell of a wrestler. You know, So why? Why, why, why Brett? I do not understand. Obviously, I don't want to give the guy any publicity, so I'm not going to mention his name. He was arrested. He was charged. They have now you know, shown some of his Twitter his tweets and his Twitter account. The kid is obviously, I think it goes without saying, has some issues. You know, he thought this was going to be a good way to get his foot in the door in the WWE. Yeah, you got your foot in the door and then your head knocked out as you got escorted right out of the WWE. So I hope your 15 seconds of fame were worth the, the ass whooping you took. Because in literally, like Seth said, under two seconds, the first guy to get to him 
wasn't even a pro wrestler. It was Travis Brown, who is Ronda Rousey's husband. And oh, by the way, a former top 10 ranked heavyweight in UFC. Probably not a guy you want to get their hands on you. Right. Who I also believe is training at the Performance Center. I think he may make an in-ring debut. That's just what I've heard. I I don't know if that's a fact, but, you know, it's possible. If you're a top 10 heavyweight mixed martial art fighter, you're you're a BAMF. There's no doubt about that, right? (laughs) 100%. (laughs) Yeah. And he got several free shots in, and Titus O'Neil got a free sh- some shots in, and he Slater got some shots in, and Harry Smith Jr., who is Davy Boy's son, and of course Brett's and Jim's nephew got some shots in. But the best one of all was probably uh, was it Dash Wilder from from yeah. the Revival, who mm-hmm. probably legitimately knocked the guy out as he was being escorted out to the police to be cuffed. Uh, people will say it's a sucker punch. Maybe it was. The guy ain't gonna forget it because if he didn't get his jaw broke, I'd be shocked. You've seen the footage, haven't you, Seth? Yeah, he just kind of walks right past and bong, you know. And I mean, and and, and this was not a worked punch. <laughs> it was not a dash. I mean, he clocked his butt, you know. I mean, square in the jaw. And uh, I mean, and believe me, if you go back and watch what you can see on the network, Brett wanted to get his hands on the kid. He really did. You see it in his if eyes. You'll notice yeah. if you if you if you pay attention. Edge and Steve Carino are standing behind Brett, and Steve Carino has him in a waist lock from behind and is whispering in his ear. And you can, if you can read lips, calm down, brother. We got this. You know, so was was unfortunate it happened. Um, it's kind of the crazy world we live in today, where you know, if I get my my face on 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 camera, I'm going to be somebody. Well, you're a nobody, kid. You know, and um, you couldn't have done it to. The, the, the only thing I can figure as I thought about it was, well, I'm not going to ju- – if this is a 25-year-old kid who has a little bit of an MMA background, which is what we're being told, who's thinking this will help him you know, get a wrestling career, he's probably laying down the odds. I know because the kid – think about what I do for a living. The boys that I deal with at my job are not that dissimilar from this kid. I can tell that he has the kind of same issues that they have, you know, mm-hmm. and he's probably trying to logic out in his own mind. Uh-huh, let me see who's going in. Well, it ain't going to really help me to beat a honky tonk man because he ain't that big and he wasn't seen as a tough guy. Well, I can't jump Tori. She's a woman. That ain't going to help me. Um, I ain't jumping the Harlem Heat. There's two of them and they're big dudes. Um, I'm, I'm not going to, I can't jump the legacy people because they're all dead. I can't, I, I, I can't jump Brutus because he wasn't seen as a tough guy. I sure as heck ain't going to jump DX because there's like six of them. Well, everybody thinks Brett's tough and he's probably going to be up there by himself, maybe with Natty. So he's the one I'm going to jump. And I might actually have a chance because, you know, he is 61, but he's had two strokes of cancer. Yeah. How'd that work out, kid? <laughs> <laughs> How'd that work out? But anyway, uh, to, to Brett's credit and a, and a statement to his professionalism, he, as soon as it was over and the ring was cleared, he went right back like nothing had happened. I mean, that's true class of professionalism. He, he told some great stories, I thought. Um, you could see Natty, who, uh, you know, I'm in love with. I've not hidden that fact here on the podcast. I thought she did a great job honoring her father. Um, it was, I, it was, you know, Brett got a little emotional, um, and rightfully so. Um, it was well deserved. They were an innovative tag team, and it's just unfortunate it was marred by the stupidity and 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 sadly the mental issues of 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 a of a deranged individual. But um, if it it was memorable because of it, I'll say that you know. Right. One other Brett Hart story that. It's not anything having to do with him directly, but it was that best there was, best there is, best there will be thing. I remember having a discussion with people on the a one com message board 
which has now become the Behind the Squared Circle board. It may have even gone back to the One Wrestling days, but maybe not. But I was new to the internet fan aspect of wrestling, because this was still like the late 90s. And I had heard the term work rate, and I just assumed work rate meant like work rate in the regular working field, you know, maybe work ethic or something to that effect. And I had mentioned that uh, I thought, you know, the work rate was good. And, and, you know, I I said this guy like really only took like one sick day in like 13 years or something like that. And somebody else went on to explain what work rate was. And it was like the quality of matches and stuff like that. Stuff that I think people inside the business don't really say, use that term much. No, we don't use, we don't use that term. And when we do, it is a completely different definition than what you fans use, but I'll digress. Right. Right. And he, so in this person's term, it was, you know, like putting on the the best match you can, even if there's only 50 people out there as there was 5,000 and, Bret Hart would, of course, if he's working a house show, he's probably not going to do the same type of match he might do in a pay-per-view main event. And there's nothing wrong with that, quite frankly. You know, I think that's smart. But, you know, apparently I didn't know what work rate meant. And now, 20 years later, knowing what I know, I think I still was kind of right in the context I was saying, that it's showing up every day, doing your job, being safe, and not hurting anybody. Uh, you, that, that analogy you use of the house show versus the big show mm-hmm. and my, my, my explaining that, it, that if we use the term in the business, it's a different definition. I would bet just my knowing of what I know about Bret Hart, his work rate was top notch at both, mm-hmm. even with doing less at the house show. So that shows you how different we in the business look at it from fans, you know, moving on to Brutus beefcake and what I say about him, he is, I think, a good example of the right gimmick going to the right guy at the right time. Because the most over he ever was, and he basically said it in his speech, that was the biggest name and the, probably the most amount of money he was he made was when he was Brutus the Barber Beefcake. I mean, he did win a tag team title with, I believe it was Valentine. Yep, but, dream team. Right, right. His babyface run as the Barber, he was probably certain times, probably the number two babyface behind Hogan. You know, when mm-hmm. Hogan was feuding with Savage and Zeus, that was the guy that was in Hogan's corner. So just on that alone and being so prominent during that rock and wrestling or national expansion, whatever you want to call it, I totally see why he is in the Hall of Fame. And I'm actually a little bit surprised that maybe he didn't go in earlier, like, you know, 2005, 2006, or whenever it was that Hogan went in. Around the same time as like Valentine went in, maybe they right. were even going as a tag team type thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, he's one of those that like Tory. I've got to ask questions. Why did he go in? Um, let me say this: You and I were talking before we started recording. Our listeners know uh, about this, and and I brought up Ron Garvin, and I brought up how a lot of people nowadays bash his run as the NWA champion in '87, and I bring up well, you weren't a fan here in the Crockett territory at that time. I was. Uh, we as fans here were not shocked that Ronnie Garvin won the title, nor had he ever been presented as somebody who wasn't worthy of the title and at that level. So when he won it, we completely bought it. Um, I could say much the same thing for Brutus the Barber as a Hall of Fame worthy candidate from that same era, you know, this exact same time frame, mid to late 80s. Um, look, Ed Leslie, Brutus the Barber, he was never the best in ring worker. He was never the best talker. But guess what? He was easy to work with. He didn't hurt. He never hurt anybody. 
He did whatever he was asked to do, including jobs, and never complained. Yes, he was politically connected because his best friend was the top draw in the company, but he ain't the first or the last guy that's going to be true of in the business. And he, he had a good look. He was a good-looking guy who stayed in shape. You know, He could have gotten lazy and rested on his laurels off of his friendship with Hogan, but he didn't. You know, He stayed in shape. He went to the gym. He, he, he did his cardio. And remember, he worked the territories like Hogan did before he made it to New York. He paid his dues. Um, he was given a gimmick. He worked it. He worked it well. And like you said, he was, you know, a number two, three or three babyface during one of the most profitable and, and biggest drawing periods in the history of the company. How is that not worthy of Hall of Fame? I, I don't understand it. Right. I think people are being blinded back to the Ronnie Garvin uh, uh, analogy. People who don't understand Ronnie Garvin's run only know Ronnie Garvin as rugged Ronnie Garvin in, the, in his waning days of his career for Vince. They only know Brutus in the winning days of his career as the booty man and the disciple and Zodiac and all that stuff, right? That's all they know. Right. And I'm not saying that Brutus the Barber Beefcake was any better in ring than those guys, but what I'm saying is he was presented as and accepted by the fans at the time as a much more important person and character on the roster than those other characters I just mentioned that he portrayed later on. You know, So very fitting, and I will also say this about Ed Leslie and his defense. I don't know the man. I've met him one time and it was an introduction. He said who he was. I introduced who I was. And that was that I have, I have gone with Susan green to several of these conventions that these wrestlers like her and like Brutus go to, right. To, to help her run her booth. And he's been at several of those. He always has one of the longest lines and he is always without question. One of the most polite and nice people of all the talents there to the fans that I see just observing with my own eyes, you know, and watching all the veterans. He legitimately appreciates the fans. He legitimately is touched when they tell him these stories about, Oh, you were, you were such an important part of my growing up. That means something to him. And he will, he is very open and willing to talk to these people, take time to take a picture with them, whether he's getting paid or not. He just, he really cares. And, there are a lot of guys who I respect in the business from his era who I can't say that about, and I still respect them, but I can't say that about them on how they feel about the fans and doing these conventions. So that in and of itself makes me respect him at a, at a level I don't a lot of people in the wrestling business. And I, that's the highest praise I can give somebody, you know? Right, absolutely. As far as tag team goes, you could make the argument that the Harlem Heat going in was long overdue. I mean, they were oh, yes. ar arguably the best tag team to come out of WCW. Now, let me specify WCW. We're talking that mid to late 90s run where they really weren't associated with the Crockett's anymore, at least the WCW name. Right. Uh, I do think had they gone to WWE at some point, you know, during the Monday Night War, they probably would have become tag team champions there as well. So, oh, heck yeah. Yo, know, it's yeah. really between them and the Steiners as far as the team that was probably the best to come out of WCW. But I think even in the late eighties, the, the Steiners were more associated and thought of as NWA than than WCW. Right. And that's so. in, and that's including even after they had like a year and a half run and won Vince's belts in the early nineties. You know, <laughs> right? I would say this personally, not to compare companies, but to talk eras. They arguably were the most dominant tag team of the nineteen nineties. Right. More so than the Steiners. Uh, the, the Dudleys, maybe, but the Dudleys kind of really 
started in the 90s and really moved over into the 2000s is when they became the dominant team. You know, they were to the 90s probably what the Road Warriors were to the 80s, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, that is, too, you know. Right. And that also makes Booker T and Bret Hart, you know, two-time inductees now. Now, the, the main event really was, of course, built up and uh, depicted as can I, being— can I, can, I, can, I, can I say something sure. about the Harlem Heat real quick? Sure, sure. Before, before you get going on the main event. Another thing I liked about the Harlem Heat, I've met both Stevie Ray and Booker. I have a lot of respect. I like both of them. They were one of my favorite tag teams of all time. Um, they are brothers. I know some of our listeners won't understand what I'm saying when I say that, but you do because you know me. They openly on an open mic gave props to two individuals who deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, but are not because they're not in the good graces of the company. One would even be in the Hall of Fame right now. When I mention him, you'll know what I'm talking about. But because he's not in good graces of the company, he's not. But they rightfully gave, gave, showed their thanks and appreciation to him because they were helpful to them early in their career. And that would be Sid Vicious and Ole Anderson. You know, that's the kind of stand up guys that Booker T and Stevie Ray are, even though it wasn't politically savvy. They said from their heart what they felt and that and it because it's true. Those two guys helped them. Ole's the one that booked them when they first got WCW and gave them a push. Mm -hmm. And Sid helped them down in, in global when they first started in the business. You know, right. and I loved the fact they brought up the Ebony experience. You were kind of wondering if they were going to do it, and they did. Right, because <laughs> right. I can truthfully say I first noticed them in Global as the Ebony experience, and Stevie Ray was the guy that was depicted as being the better wrestler. But you know, that's right, and you know. and everybody, we all know that Booker T was the was the breakout star singles. You know, to use the old analogy, Booker was the Sean, Stevie Ray was the Marty, right? <laughs> you know, right. the team. But I think you saw in that interview, one, Booker T really does love Stevie Ray as a brother. And there was, there was a lot of legitimate heat for a while. And two, I knew this because I remember his brief run as an announcer. Stevie Ray is not, 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 not that bad on the microphone. He's pretty entertaining. And I think you saw that when, in his speech. You know, the, I mean, I was laughing every five minutes. Well, brother, looks like it ended before it started. <laughs> <laughs> he said that one more time. I was going to die laughing. But, you know, it's, and it's, it's, um, I, I think, I mean, come on, look at Stevie Ray. He looks, he, dude, he may not have been the greatest worker in the world, but does anybody else look, I mean, does anybody look more like a professional wrestler than he did in his heyday? Remember right. how good they, he looked? I mean, he was, I mean, forget the fact he's jacked to the gills. He's what, six, seven? Right. Yeah. And really, just by looking at him, and granted, he's in a suit, but he looked pretty much the same as he did 20 yeah. years ago. And, and I'm cheap plug. If if you can ever listen to his podcast, I cannot remember the name of it now, but just look up Booker T po or look up uh, Stevie Ray podcast. His podcast is hilarious. He is so funny. The guy is entertaining as all get out. And he's got he's still got one of my favorite catchphrases ever in wrestling. Suckers got to know. I just love that catchphrase. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know why, but I love that catchphrase. You know, and 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 WCW. We've discussed doing a whole episode on on the history of music and professional wrestling. And in, and in discussing that, you and I both have talked about how WCW was not known for having great themes. Part of that being because Jim Johnston was in, the, was in the WWE making great themes. Harlem Heat's theme is one of my favorite themes ever, and it's a WCW theme. And I'm very glad they played that song to let when right. they inducted him because I yeah. love that song. Right. I love how it's just, yes, yes, yes. Yes. No, no. And then the guy no. laughing. Yeah. <laughs> And then it's got the cool little synthesizer, kind of funky beat. You know, I was like, that, that, that's, it's cool. I love that song. I don't know why. Yeah. Just certain things hit you sometimes, right? <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. 
Now, the main event was built up to and obviously executed as it being DX, which also makes Sean a two-time inductee. And again, DX, one of those guys you don't really think of as being uh, classic, but we are talking over 20 years ago is their, their heyday. And, attitude era. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think they really came at a time where they had to compete with the NWO, be something different than the NWO. And obviously they did a lot of comedy and such, but you know, that is really the era that so many fans who are younger than us remember is that attitude era. And I've talked about it before about how, you know, when bringing up match quality and people wanting great matches and it's just like, well, when the two times WWE was at its hottest in the mid 1980s and then the late 1990s, it sure as hell wasn't become a match quality. You know, that, no, that's not what it was about. Sables, Sable's boobs and, and Austin flipping the bird and the rock calling right. people candy asses. Or if you want to go back to the 80s, it's, you know, Hogan ripping off the shirt, dropping the leg. It's steamboat breathing fire. It's savage. You know, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. Right. Just sorry, folks. And as much as I love Dusty and Rick, they're from that same era. Same thing in the NWA. You were not watching because Ric Flair and Dusty. I mean, they had great matches, but they weren't, you know, Will Ospreay versus Zack Zach Sabre Jr. They weren't. Right. But my God, they were entertaining and they told a story. Absolutely. And I really do think people like Sean and Hunter and such, you know, they they certainly were, were no dummies. And I think we'd even set off Mike that even somebody like Hunter, if you were to meet Hunter again, you'll be able to talk to him on a level that I or most people listening or most fans, really any fans, won't be able to because uh, Hunter did break in. You know, he wasn't, and again, going to sound meaner than it's meant to, he wasn't born into the business like the McMahon family. He broke in no. the old-fashioned way. No, he was terrorizing before he was Jean-Paul Levesque, before he was Hunter Hearst Helmsley, before he was Triple H. He paid his dues. Right. I was happy. I think this, once again, show, we've talked about this in past covering, how, uh, to speak to Hunter again, Hunter is extending olive branches that were just not extended a few year, just a few years ago. That's why Bruno's in. That's why Savage is in. That's why Rick Rude's in. Um, this was, you can talk all you want about polit- political machinations behind the scene and the click that was mentioned. Um, this was probably the only way Sean Waltman was going to get in, was in this group, not as a solo star. And he deserves to be in because he was a, a very, very influential uh, at, at the birth of what we call cruiserweights. Right. And he was essentially the only real cruiserweight WWE had for a while before right. DX started. Right. He was and, a trailblazer uh, I, for the cruiserweights, I think, if, if you want to sure, use that term. Sure, sure. That's a very good term. And we don't need to talk about how good Sean was in the ring in the 90s. There's, that's well documented. Hunter is Hunter. And uh, I don't need to tell you how much I think of the Armstrong family. Road Dog, without a doubt, is one of the best stick men in the last, what, 30 years in the business. And Billy Gunn's not great, but I, Billy Gunn's one of those dudes, man, when you meet brother, you don't realize how big he is until you meet him in person. He is almost 6'5", and legit about 265 of solid muscle, even today in his 50s. Right. I would point to his work in New Japan recently, about a year and a half ago. He was part yes. of the World Tag League, and his tag team partner was uh, Yoshitatsu. And mm-hmm. every time he was in the ring unless it was with another uh, Gaijin, he was like literally almost a full head taller and like a a full shoulder wider than everybody else he was in the ring with. 
and and don't sleep on Brian either on Road Dog. Road Dog's about six three, six four. He's a big dude too. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that we all know, even they joked about it during the induction. It's not a hidden fact. It's a known fact that Billy Gunn is signed with and working for AEW, and yet they still included him. You know, and still right. trusted him with an open mic. And and Sean for all Waltman that is not Michaels, X Pac for all the very public problems he's had. You could see when they kept talking about these guys with their friends, that was sincere. There was a time not long ago where where Brian Armstrong, Brian James was talking very bad about Triple H in very public formats because of his drug issues. And when he said he thanked God and the WWE, for those that don't know, it was that that policy they have to send guys to rehab and pay for it that pretty much saved Brian's life. And Brian knows that. And that's why he's working for the company now, you know, um, and situations like that would not have happened just what, four or five years ago. I mean, that's that recently, uh, a lot of things have changed and I think it's, they've changed for the better in that regard. And then, you know, the fact China was included too, because she was such a key part of DX and she was a trailblazer, you can think all you want. She by far was not the greatest woman's in-ring worker or a good promo, but she was a trailblazer for women in the wrestling business. Whether you like it or not, it is what it is. And with the very public fall from grace she had at the end of her life, her life post-WWE, the very public uh, relationship and breakup she had with with Hunter and Sean Waltman, these are these are very well-known facts, you know? Very well-known facts. And for goodness sakes, it's the elephant in the room. She became an adult porn, uh, adult film star, you know, a porn star. Yet they still decided to give her the respect she deserved, in my opinion. And I thought they did it classly. They did it with taste. And it was emotional for Sean and Hunter when they talked about her. But I think they were sincere in the words that they said. And I think they were classy when they did it. And kudos to... Those two brothers in, in particular, but the company as a whole for allowing that to happen. I, because I don't think that happened just as recently as four or five years ago. So, you know, good I on them for right. that. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of the list of the 2019 WWE Hall of Fame inductees. Again, I don't think there's anybody that you couldn't make a case for because uh, in their own rights, a lot of these people were, you know, draws memorable for some way or another. So anything else you wanted to add about this, this uh, class or this list? I just wonder if with, with what we talked about with the Bret Hart, with the Hart Foundation induction, induction, do we go back to the standard stage next year? <laughs> I hope so. I, I think that gives all the uh, critics of that setup all the ammo they need because nobody's going to well, be able to I'm, run up from behind on a, on a stage. Right. And my understanding was, for what it's worth, for those that don't know, uh, was essentially the WWE had booked the Barclays Center, the building, for the entire weekend. So there was no event going on sat Sunday because Sunday was WrestleMania, and that was going to be at the outdoor stadium at MetLife. You know, so uh, they uh, they just thought about it in production meetings and just thought it's going to be ridiculous to tear down the the the, the ring from the Friday night show, NXT show, then and take all the manpower and time to set up the stage. And then tear it down, and then and and then everybody was going to be busy, you know, working at Mania on Sunday. Then have them rush in there on Monday and set the ring back up for the sh- for the for the Raw uh, and SmackDown on Monday and Tuesday. So I understand why they did it yeah. you on know? paper. It, yeah, I can you, I can totally understand that. It's just it's just a matter of uh, it's, it's a business decision, you know. I guess the only thing I would ask now, um, and it's just food for thought, and we'd love to hear your 
responses, uh, you know, please let us know on the website or you can send either one of us tweets. Who do you think goes in next year? Now that the class of 2019 is done, remembering kind of what the formula is and it's going to be in New Orleans next year. You got any early predictions for you who you think might go in next year? Well, we did talk about pretty much every year since the last two years. Maybe we might get uh, the Rock and Roll Express uh, inducting the Midnights because that was probably their most known feud. And the other one, since he did announce his retirement after WrestleMania, I think Batista goes in next year as well. If he's not the main event, he'll be like that second from the top guy. But I think when he goes in, he's going to be considered the top main eventer. Right, right. the only one I can the other one I agree with both those, especially the the Midnight Express. With we've said part of the formula is they always want to one induct a tag team and two induct somebody who has ties to that area that they're having WrestleMania at from the territory days. Well, the first the first big territory for the Midnight Express was was you know Mid South. So there you go, right? And they're super dumb. Uh, the only other one I would think, and I guess it depends on his schedule because he is kind of busy right now. But but Glenn Jacobs. I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, we all we both agree he is going to go in at some point, right? O- only a matter of time. So, is he really done? I mean, he yes, he's the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, but he was still there this weekend, past weekend. So, it's not like he can't free up his schedule for a day or two. And I mean, it's even closer from where he is in Tennessee to New Orleans than it is there to New York. So he's just what just got to hop on a plane, right? I mean, all he's got to do is go to the airport in Knoxville, and he's in New Orleans in one hour and a half, if that. Yeah. Get off the plane, do the ceremony, stick around for an hour or so afterwards, you know, saying hi to the boys, hop back on a plane. He's back doing his mayor gig the next day, right? And I, and I, and, I and, and, and quite frankly, even if it doesn't happen next year, I think we can earn agreement that all three of them will eventually go in at some point, even if it's a legacy. Right, right. And there's other people like uh, Rick Martell, uh, probably mm-hmm. people like, well, they're, they're going to put the NWO in at some point, I think, as well. Right. Another fixture, at least as far as the tag teams go, I mean, they might be in bad graces, especially Scott, but the Steiners are, are worthy, but it goes back to the, whether they're in good graces or not, you know. Right. I think the British Bulldogs probably fall in that category. Killer Bees, Demolition. Um, there's a lot of people. Another one, once again, not in good graces, but I think Sid Vicious. At mm-hmm. some point, the Olive Branch will be put out and it, something will be worked out. He'll get in. So there's a lot of possibilities, but Dave Batista, I hadn't thought of, but you know, like you said, with him mentioning his retirement, that seems like a pretty solid. And he's going to be coming off of, you know, I don't know. I'm betting we, we you, you listen to our regular, our sister podcast, uh, radio, but I'm betting the guardians three will probably be coming out around the same time. So there's some synergy there that, that dreaded word we hate so much. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this edition. This has been Classic Wrestling Memories, Volume 27. We are at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, and if you do a search for that title on the pod player of your choosing, you should be able to find us. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, just about any place you can find podcasts. So definitely give us a subscribe. Give us a rating. The only thing I ask when you give us a rating and feedback is be honest, because... I am honest when I say that I am always trying to make this show better, and I want to know what you think of this show. The other websites are BehindTheSquaredCircle.com as well as TWBPodcast.com for the main flagship show, The Wrestling Brethren. And the social media is TWBP Show as well as on 
Facebook at Behind the Squared Circle. So, Train, if anybody wants to talk to you about Hall of Fame or maybe hear some uh, wrestling stories, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. Now, I know usually this is the part where I say we'll, we'll talk to you folks again next time with another edition. Well, I can comfortably say we're going to talk to you about a specific topic on our next show. <laughs> Volume 28 is being devoted to the late, great Destroyer Dick Byer. That's going to be our next volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. So we'll talk to you folks again shortly for Dick Byer. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. And Train, I think you know me well enough to know that I'm not lying when I say this. I knew that when Honky talked about the song he was named after, I knew Honky Tonk Man was uh, the song by Johnny Horton. That, of course, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, well, I mean, so, many many country stars have recorded that song, but yeah, it was his hit first. So. Right, right. And for those of you who don't know who he is, you might have heard of a, a song. He did a little song called Ballad New Orleans. That was a pretty mm-hmm. big hit, but no. Or North to Alaska, but I digress. Sick the Bismarck had them all on 45, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Horton. For those yep. of you who don't know, look him up. Great old country star. Yeah. If you want a new, newer one, Dwight Yoakam covered it in the 90s. <laughs>